Welcome to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Take your assigned seats and listen close as the next hour will have you rethinking the public education system while you listen to Ross and his guests share their expertise and experiences in the field. Class is in session. Here is your host, Ross Danis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Let's Reimagine School, the program that focuses not on what's wrong with our schools, but rather what's possible. Today's episode, In Pursuit of Equity, Leadership Challenges and Opportunities with our special, special guest, Cammie Anderson. Cammie Anderson's a change agent committed to upending inequitable systems. She leads with humility, urgency, and passion. Six-time chief executive of government and nonprofit turnarounds and startups with a record of bringing people together to get results. She's a lifetime athlete, a mom, a theater geek, a fearless advocate for equity, an ally and co-conspirator in the fight for social justice, a respected colleague and someone I'm honored to call friend. Welcome, Cammie. And returning to, the, returning to the program as a respondent in our third segment is Professor James Guthrie. Professor Guthrie will help us answer the question, what did we learn today? More about Professor Guthrie at the top of our final segment. Cami, the idea for this show emerged when we heard educators, parents, and policymakers talking about a return to normal after the pandemic. And you and I both know that the system was not working for many young people before the pandemic. Why return? Why not use this moment to go forward and educate? So as someone who has walked the talk, who's navigated the complex challenges of educating uh, or educational reform and lived to talk about it, what would it take for schools to be more effective, more efficient, more equitable? What would it take? Hmm. Big question. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, there's a lot to say, but I think I'll start with two, two things and we'll go where, where the conversation leads. So one is, um, uh, as you know, uh, there are a bunch of young people that were left way out of the conversation about educational excellence way before COVID, right? So um, students with disabilities, um, students living well below the poverty level, students who are second language learners, um, students who uh, are, are expressing what they need through negative behavior, students who are court involved, by the way, most court involved students were uh, connected to um, the child welfare system well before they were connected to the juvenile justice system. So I describe these um, as students that systems have failed the most, uh, as opposed to kind of opportunity youth or quote unquote special ed students. Like these are students that, um, that multiple systems and have typically failed. And, um, and prior to the pandemic, uh, those young people were not reading and doing math and writing at grade level, they were not being uh, coached to have healthy habits in school. Um, and some of them weren't even in school. And if they were, um, you know, uh, grownups were looking for ways to put them out of sight, out of mind. And, and even in basements, as you know, I was the superintendent of alternative high schools in New York City where 90,000 16 to 23 year olds um, were, you know, literally learning in basements, um, uh, not metaphorically, but literally. And this is true of systems across the country. So my point being this, <laughs> I wonder what would happen if we designed the system with the 20% at the core, as opposed to the periphery. Like, I wonder if we would win and do things in a far more innovative, kid-centric, 
different way if we thought about designing, um, you know, targeted universalism. We basically thought about mm-hmm. the kids we failed the most, and we thought about them first as we redesigned the, designed the system. I think it would not only promote equity, but it would force innovation, and I think it would lift all boats and create uh, a mandate for us to do things differently. And irritate all kinds of parents, the gifted and talented, of the <clears throat> higher end, you know, who are used to being catered to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. P- potentially. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think, um, as, as you know, Ross, we, um, in Newark and elsewhere where I have worked, um, it is true that, that the existing system works for some kids, depending on how you define work, mm-hmm. right? Um, so even in, in a place like Newark, let's just, take, let's just take the gifted and talented comment and the, and the, the, the um, magnet school example, right? So uh, a lot of, a very small number of families in Newark felt like they were winning because they had access to what, what the community perceived to be coveted seats in a handful of elementary schools that were considered to be great and a handful of high schools that were considered to be great. But even there, we have sold families a bill of goods because if you look below the surface, right? Um, And we started, for example, publishing graduation uh, rates that showed whether kids were leaving high school with proficiency or advanced proficiency. And some of the most coveted magnet schools in Newark, where folks felt like they were so lucky to get in, were taking proficient kids and graduating them proficiently. So congratulations to us. We we took kids who were going to win without us (laughs) and didn't put them to the next level. So part of the work, and it's hard to break Mm -hmm. through, is um, even the schools that are considered to be um, coveted, uh, you know, instead of talking about are we are we giving young people both the academic and social and emotional skills to thrive and have the maximum amount of life options, we're talking about coveted schools and Mm -hmm having spent time in tons of schools, ones that are considered not and ones that, you know, that isn't always matched with reality. So we have work to do there as well. And I think that would help us um, change the conversation. And, and frankly, COVID did a little bit of that in an awesome way. Like everyone's pissed. Everyone's yeah. mad, right? Like right. So the dissatisfaction and, the, and it's almost like the veil was pulled off. Um, and it, I think it could be, an opportunity to change the conversation about what is quality, what is equity, um, and, and potentially create uh, allies and alliances and a coalition for change that didn't exist pre-COVID when, you know, uh, just even, I'll give you an example, families in my own son's school, they're like, oh, well, what are they supposed to be learning in sixth grade math? Yes, Ross, my son is now in sixth grade. Can you believe that? He's a giant. He's a giant. Um, but, but now people are like, wait, and is that math hard enough? And how often do they practice that math? And what should I be doing at home? And why is that teacher giving that homework? And that one's not, right? So, um, so I think, again, perhaps there is an opportunity to create a, a more universal mm-hmm. um, instead of a divisive conversation about what is excellence and equity really look like in this moment that we have not had before. No. If we, but I, hope, I wonder if we have the courage to steer into that. Or if we, if we just revert back to who's winning and who's losing and the people who are winning are at the mic. Yeah. I mean, right here in North Carolina, the test scores just came back. Only 5% of our black and brown kids are reading on grade level in third grade. Only, and 13% overall. So, you know, the young people we work with, they were on the bottom rung of the economic ladder before the pandemic. They can't even find the ladder now. But we start sorting them, as you know, 
third grade, you go over here and get remediated. You get enrichment over here. Eighth grade, you get algebra, you get pre-algebra, and the world begins to divide. And I don't think it's an accident, as you know. I think it's all intentional. And I like I love the idea of focusing on the 20%. You did something really, among several really interesting things in Newark, bold moves. You gave parents a choice between district schools and a charter school. You said, name your top five schools, and we're going to do our best to give you, I guess, what top three. I think you got most of the people in the top three. That that's even today, it's heretical, you know, to talk about uh, embracing charters instead of pushing them aside and thinking of them as competition. Do you, how do you feel about that whole that that period of time and what you did? Well, so I, I think of things relatively simply, like in, in a place like Newark, there are about 100 schools. If you consider the early childhood centers, the um, K to K to eights, K to fives, the um High schools are about about 100 schools, roughly, right? And you know, we just literally woke up every day and say, how do we have 100 excellent schools where every kid is on a pathway to leaving K-12 with the academic, social, and emotional skills to access the widest range of life options? So 100 excellent schools. And, and literally on my wall, there were like the five ingredients that we know exist in, in great schools, right? Great leader, great teachers, great content, culture of um, high expectations, high support, not one without the other, um, and, and true partnerships with the community and families. And so we just thought if we could have all five of those things in all 100 schools in every neighborhood, then, then we will have done something, right? And if you close your eyes and you think, am I going to get there faster with a monopoly or am I going to get there faster by, by having more people that are mission-driven and values-aligned on the field, right? And that included, in early childhood, local um, CBOs and moms, mostly and some dads, you know, running daycare centers and early childhood centers, and it included charters, and it included a a couple of um, private schools that had a real passion and mission for Newark young people and, and frankly, real know-how. so 100 excellent schools, regardless of governance, and when we thought about how we get there, we thought for sure we're going to get there faster if there are more folks with mission-aligned, mission-driven, values-aligned approaches, like trying to solve that problem than just one system, right? So that was the first, that was the first premise. And, and by the way, the community was demanding that too. This is not something, it's not like Cami Anderson came into town and said, hey, here's an idea, Right, the demand for um, high-quality and diverse schools run by different providers was huge. Thou- you know, thousands of families on waiting lists. When we when we got the Head Start grant and devolved it to a bunch of community-based centers, like the demand for the community-based centers as opposed to the ones we ran, huge. Right. So also, we're also responding to what we were hearing from the community and a real mandate for change. Even though that's not what you heard on the mic, you know, in poll after poll, families in Newark said. We want better, faster. Like all this stuff about go slow to go fast. They were like, forget that, man. We know we're not, we need better schools than mm-hmm. we need now. So as far as the mindset, like to me, that felt like the right mindset, right? And then the enrollment piece, which was a part of it, right? So first you have to actually have the supply. <laughs> what was happening at the time prior to our universal enrollment approach, there were clear winners and losers because everyone ran their own lottery. So even, even choice schools that were run by the district, magnet schools, 
there was not even one system. Like mm-hmm. I literally asked my first week, well, where, how do you get into school XYZ? And right. they're like, well, you go to the principal. I was like, oh, cause what could go wrong? Because <laughs> what could go wrong? Right. So, so the, the way it was set up, right? Is there were ways of, there were winners and there were losers. And, um, and it was always the, the 20% that the, the families that were living below the poverty level that didn't have the extra time to drive to five different schools to participate in five different lotteries that were at the back of the line. And we just felt like that wasn't fair. We didn't want to have choice schools. And then the kids in the greatest need were in everything else that was left over. And so the only way to change that dynamic was to offer choice to everyone. And, and what was so crazy, people said, well, p- families don't know how to exercise choice. They won't use it. Year one, 95% of families participated in that process. Wow. 95%, which we just, we had made it so opaque and told ourselves this crazy story that there were only some parents who wanted to exercise choice. Mm-hmm. And, and really that was just us backwards mapping a rationale for an inherent inequity that was baked into the system. So it is true that both both politically were bold, but as far as sort of what the fam- what families was were demanding, and also just like you know what, what I regarded as our core mandate, like to me, just common sense solutions um, to a problem that had been allowed to persist for way too long. Right. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm reminded of of um how strong the union was or perhaps is in Newark, New Jersey. And when you say you had support from families, I'm, I'm sure you didn't get support from the union on this. Well, you know, it's fascinating because just like most organizations, a union's not a monolithic, right? right. So uh, as an example, the head of the, of the union at that time, God rest his soul, who used to say horrible things about me on the microphone, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just hair raising and, and performance art that was sort of amazing. Sometimes I really appreciated it um, and thought it was even hilarious. Um, but behind, behind closed doors, just as an example, he really believed in merit pay. Hmm. Like truly as a human, he was like, you know what? If you're good, you should get paid more. And if you stink, you shouldn't. <laughs> like he actually philosophically, like as just a human right. being in the world, like he just thought that was like common sense. And not all of his members agreed with him. And uh, I don't think he ever really understood the universal enrollment piece. Um, but just as an example, right, just like everything, you know, the union is, is nothing but a collection of individuals. And, and here you had, you know, a very prominent union head who in his heart and soul, like 100% believed that if you were more effective, you deserve to be paid more. And he 100% believed that it shouldn't take the district $250,000 in three years to fire someone who had been documenting as, documented as putting their hands on a kid. Like he just didn't, he didn't think that was right. And so as a result, you know, there was much hay made about the contract that we negotiated, which has been ratified three times since I left. And at 85%, you know, whatever approval rating, he put provisions like that in the contract because he believed those wow. things needed to be addressed. But, but politically, right? Right. You can't say, can't say that publicly. That's right. I remember you used to call it amazing pay. If you're amazing, we're going to pay you more. It's just yeah. not because you got 15 credits or 30 credits. Right. So we're going to, this has been absolutely fascinating, Cami, but we're going to take a quick break to learn more about MechEd the Charlotte nonprofit that I lead that's focused on transforming the lives of young people who face obstacles. And if you'd like to learn more, visit us on the web at www.meched.org. 
When we return, we're going to talk with Cammie more about the personal and professional challenges of leadership, and we're going to learn a little bit about the company she founded called Third Way Solutions. Once again, more with Cammie Anderson when we return. We'll see you on the other side. So MECED is a college and career readiness uh, institution that is very committed to workforce development, has been for quite some time, with a special emphasis on making sure that the kids who face obstacles in our community have a fair shot at a bright future. Right now we're working with young people from uh, Garinger, from Harding, University High, West Charlotte, and Chambers High School. Uh, before the pandemic, they were all on the bottom fifth of the economic ladder. These days, they, it's hard for them to even find that ladder. Then we provide job shadows, uh, paid internships. We'll put, pay for career clothing, transportation, food, certification programs. The goal is to make sure that every, every young person in Mecklenburg County has an opportunity to, to live a life where they can thrive, both in school and out of school. And we believe that that doesn't happen just by being in school, that school isn't enough that to be educated requires much more than school. Experiences matter. My experiences with MedCAD, uh, they put me in an internship at the hospital for two years. I think I, th I do think MedCAD is invested in me um, living my dream. They want the best for each and every one of their students. And it's like they won't go down without a fight. <laughs> so MedCAD means opportunity. Family, friendship. I am a healthcare tech at Atrium Health University in the Maternity Center. Uh, career Pathways, we work with underserved high school students. We put them in internships at 135 different businesses and industries around Mecklenburg County. It's, it's a powerful economic mobility machine. The experience with Career Pathways, it made me more determined. That's how I got my job at Atrium, because I volunteered for four years at the hospital. So it made me get connections and and they said, I'll, I'll give you a call. With um, the students that we've had, the preparation that they had through Career Pathways was just exceptional. Honestly, I don't know what I would would do without Career Pathways. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, it's not, I don't know. Having someone to talk to and a shoulder to cry on, you know. Different family. MECED's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are going to need to thrive in life. Young people spend only 20% of their time in school. 80% of their life is spent outside of school. And we want to make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places and different ways. With after school, you're hitting on academics, you're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school, with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and Mac Ed, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. 
And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different. And what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. Welcome back to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses on what's possible not what's wrong. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with and learning from Cami Anderson, someone who spent over 30 years as a CEO committed to equity and social justice. Cam, before the break, we were talking about support for universal enrollment and some of the other bold ideas that you you uh, implemented, including what we called, you called amazing pay. If you're amazing, we're going to pay you more, but if you're not, we're not going to pay you just because you moved up on the guide. So anytime it's been said that Anyone who's leading is failing in someone's mind. So I'm curious about the personal impact of leadership. Like, how have you managed family, work, relationships during your years as a reform-minded superintendent and CEO? I mean, it's a great question, especially now. Things have gotten just nationally even more polarizing, right? It's like, um, even in the age of COVID, I feel for superintendents and, and charter management organizations and private school operators you know, just things that seem like they should be such common sense, even like public health, you know, truths have become, you know, polarizing. And and when folks disagree, you know, there's very much a shoot the messenger mentality about whoever is in charge. And so, so while I, while I, um, I certainly experienced that in my, my time as a superintendent, both in New York and Newark, I also feel like it's even worse now, um, just because, um, the, the conversations become um, everything's controversial, right? Even things that seem like apple pie. And um, and there seems to be a sort of appetite and a modeling and a normalizing of, mm-hmm. of uh, attacking whoever's at the, at the um, podium, basically. Right. And so um, I guess, you know, I guess a couple thoughts on that. One is, um, you know, I, I worked with and around and for a, a leadership uh, expert named Ron Heifetz, who I know you are a fan of. Um, and um, he talks about the ability to get on the balcony and and sort of survey the situation as if you are observing yourself in a play. And just knowing that's the case, right? Understanding that revolutions aren't quiet, change is hard. And, and um, you know, that, that leadership is often about picking among a series of sort of inadequate options where, where, you know, where, where someone's going to be upset that you didn't choose the one that they wanted. Um, and, and even my current organization is called third way solutions for a reason. I think there were folks in Newark who felt that I was too charter friendly and, and sort of too bold and too innovative. And then there were folks who thought I was too, um, protective of the district and, and wasn't, you know, willing to divest and devolve, devolve the district fast enough. And so, if you are a third way leader, someone who looks for solutions, someone who tries to find the door that hasn't been opened and really tries to um, listen for what you think is best and, and value-based as opposed to what is politically expedient, 
um, then then inherently sometimes you look to the right and the left and you know it's not a big coalition for that third door sometimes even if it even if it might be the right thing for for um, both the community and the students that you serve. So you just have to know that first of all, um, and and you have to decide like is your north star. I want to wake up. I want to be popular one day. I want to be in charge. Or is your North Star one day all kids, hundred excellent schools, especially the twenty percent? For me, thank thank goodness, given my my upbringing, my my family, um, I have always been very clear that my North Star is one day all kids, hundred excellent schools, twenty percent at the front, and that is very motivating, very clarifying in moments of smoke and and hollering and finger pointing and all the things. Um, so that's the second thing is um, I think we, we have to recruit and, and protect and promote and, and lift up leaders that, that have a North star around delivering results for their communities, not per se on uh, being beloved. I don't think that's the work. And I don't think power gives up power quietly. So I, I had that perspective and I'm grateful for it. Um, I think the third thing I would say is just surrounding yourself with people who um, uh, have the skill and the will to help you get it done, right? And 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 who have the both the um, the sort of intellectual honesty and clarity to tell you when you're messing up, and also the you know emotional maturity to give you a hug when um, when it just gets to be you know too much. So I think also the last thing is I, I've been blessed by just awesome friends and family and teammates who um, made sure that I had a great balance of both making sure I heard the truth, um, but also, you know, um, uh, understanding that you have to support folks emotionally uh, in order for, for them to stay on the field. So I think those are some thoughts. Mm -hmm. You know that Heifetz talks about, you know, balcony dance floor, but I'm reminded of him pointing out that when we go to the balcony, we also have to continue to see ourselves on the dance floor and somehow we might be even contributing to the very dysfunction we're complaining about you know, um, how we show up. 100%. Matters. 100%. But I, I do recall uh, passing your house one morning in Newark and there were protesters outside mm -hmm. your, your house. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, it seemed to be too personal from my perspective. I also heard a reference to your child at a, uh, from the audience at a board meeting one time that I thought was painful. Mm -hmm. So I just give you enormous credit for, keeping that North star right there so, and having friends and family around you that support you. You're like you go home to somebody who loves you, you know, and friends who love you and, um, mm -hmm. and know that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. I mean, just to be, just to be transparent. I mean, there were still days where it got the better of me. There's no question. Um, you know, I had that perspective. I had that North star. It's what kept me going. I, it's why I'm was so grateful to have that role um, but, you know, there were certainly moments that were too much or, you know, where it got me um, it wasn't just protesters. Right. There was like the feces on the porch, the brick through the window, the, the oh, you know, yeah. being, cor the, being cornered, um, you know, well away from the crowd and threatened the, you know, um, and and of course, the, the meeting about my son, where I where I ultimately did exit stage left at, for two reasons. One it was clear to me that that there was an orchestrated uh, effort to like create a scenario where I had to call the police and have mass arrests. And I'm like, I'm not going to reside over a meeting where a bunch of people get arrested. Right. Especially. Because, right. And then two, because uh, I knew that I, my ability to get on the balcony had been, you know, 
compromise. I, I was not on the balcony and I was afraid that I was going to say or do something that wasn't um, productive. So um, I'm just saying that to be honest, that there were yeah. times when, um, but having said that, uh, I do also remember in the middle of that, I was asked by a reporter, you know, how does it feel to be hated basically? And P.S. we only do this to women. Like we never ask mm-hmm. male, like, like, oh, how does it feel? Everyone hates you, you know? Right. And it was in the middle of like, you know, lo- the legit really difficult time. And I said something to the effect of, you know, yesterday I went to a high school and spent time with five boys who lost their best friend to gun violence. And, um, you know, it's all relative. Like I can handle a bad news cycle. Mm-hmm. Like they literally lost their best friend who was just taken out of trash. And someone asked me, well, where did you get that line? You know, which PR consultant gave you that? I'm like, nobody, because it's true, right? So like, it's all that complexity. There are times when I feel like I didn't do a good enough job being on the balcony. I let it get the best of me. Um, But there were a lot of times where I felt like I did a decent job of not doing that. Um, So, you know, you win some, you lose some. And and the bigger, the higher the stakes and the the bolder your endeavors, the, the more the more you feel those, those highs and lows. Yeah. As I recall, you, you left and didn't come back for a while. That I left. Uh, uh, yeah. I took the summer. I went, so I'm from California, uh, lived 3000 miles away from my, my growing up family for almost 20 years. And um, uh, I think, you know, this about me, I have 11 mm-hmm. siblings, nine adopted. Uh, it's a, a wonderful wonderfully diverse uh, community and ecosystem and um, just felt like, you know, that had been such an intense and taxing time. And I knew, you know, my family doesn't care like either if people love or hate me, they just love me unconditionally. And so I just wanted to be somewhere where I was not the ex New York superintendent or the ex, you know, alternative high school superintendent where I was just Cammy, the sister, friend, mom, daughter, um, and, uh, and that, you know, that, that is indeed what happened. So it was like for the summer. Yeah. We, we sort of went to California and, and just to breathe and frankly not answer 150 questions about, <laughs> about New York. Right. Yeah. I know I've said this many times, uh, in the past few years to people around me talking about Newark and, and about you, I'd say, you know, if, if Cammie Anderson said, we're jumping off this bridge. And I said, I don't, I don't know if that's a good idea, Cammie. She goes, no, we're jumping. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And <laughs> That's true. <laughs> let's, okay. Well, I'm going to go right down with you. But, um, but we had some good wins there, some interesting uh, creative ways to reward principals. Instead of merit pay, we were able to give them grants. And the grants, as I recall, were the criteria were written so specific uh, that it was just for that one principal. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, there was there was a ton of um, great work that we did together um, uh, around uh, school based autonomy. And, uh, you know, as you know, we placed a really high emphasis on getting incredible school leaders in every building, um, which to me is, you know, prerequisite for any change. Right. The unit of change is the school. That's the other thing people used to say. Well, um, you know, community X, Y, Z doesn't know you. I'm like, I'm not the messenger, right? We wanted a hundred awesome school leaders and all politics are local. They don't, they don't want to hear from the superintendent. They want to hear from the principal of their school. Right. <laughs> and right. so um, uh, you um, and all the folks that you worked with did um, a ton to help us enact that theory of change, to find great people, to make them feel supported, 
to give them resources and air cover and um, lunches and the community of practice that that really helped them to do what they needed to do because change happens one school at a time, right? The, right. the, the system's job is to enable and to get out the way, make sure that, you know, that things like labor contracts and budgets and, and curricula and assessments are, are best in class. But, but in the end, right, um, the ability to, to actually get it done at a, at a local school level is where the actual change happens. So your, your team and you personally were really um, exceedingly helpful in, in making us accelerate that piece of the work. Thank you. Um, uh, you know, I think about today and how challenging it is to be a superintendent or a school leader that, you know, you're, you're facing people who are arguing about masks. Should we wear a mask or not wear a mask? Yelling, uh, and which has become a, a civic sort of phenomenon. We punch people on airlines and, you know, we feel like it's okay to get out of your seat at the Oscars and go slap, slap somebody. Um, so I don't know. The last I heard the tenure of an, the average tenure of an urban superintendent was something like 1.7 years. Mm-hmm. And I've heard somebody say, I didn't say this, but they said that superintendents are the highest paid migrant workers in America mm-hmm. because they just go from, you know, city to city. Uh, any, where do we find more of you, Cammie Anderson? Where do, how do we cultivate more people with a North Star that enables them to be bold like that? Well, by the way, those numbers are worse for women and for, mm-hmm. for people of color um, and for women of color, the worst of all. Um, so I think, um, you know, A, um, we need to have a frank conversation about why we think of leadership as being so male. Um, we make up 85% of the workforce and still less than 15% of the heads mm-hmm. of systems. And that number has gotten worse during COVID. And it's partly because while it is true, everybody is taking it in the chin metaphorically um, um, in terms of leadership, uh, the amount of questioning of authority, know-how, uh, all of the things is so much worse if you are leading while female and God forbid you're leading while female and black or brown. So one, we got to address the conditions and just get real about the fact that it's harder, right? Which isn't to say that that male superintendents are having a picnic right now at all, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, B, I, I am trying to help in my own practice provide the coaching and individual support to those underrepresented leaders so that they have a space to get on the balcony, to, to cry, to vent, to strategize, and also um, community spaces, so one-on-one and group support. There was some of that back when I was superintendenting, but not much. And, um, and it wasn't differentiated. So when I coach female leaders, it's different. I'm like the lane encroachment thing, the number of people who tell you how to do your job who have zero clue is like remarkable. And just know that that's coming. Okay. And you got to practice that. So um, those individual and group spaces, I personally am doing more of that. And I'm really enjoying that. I'm, I always think I want to do for others what I don't feel like pretty much a lot of that wasn't done for me. Right. I think we need to make those investments. And then finally we need a better political strat. I mean, we got to get people cover. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's like, we don't, we don't create any kind of political sort of bubble is the wrong term, but like any sort of coalition that give people the time and the space to actually do what they need to do. Right. It's like, we either want a quick fix and or we want like Thanksgiving dinner. That, that's like the wrong, like that's not how this works. And so somehow we've got to figure out at the local and the national level um, how to create a, a, different, um, a different political dialogue when it comes to education and, 
Uh, I have more to say about that last one because it's so easy to say and nearly impossible to do. But unless we do that, then it doesn't, we can give all the individual coaching on the planet and, you know, folks just aren't going to be, people who are values driven and bold are not going to stay in the seat to just shuffle paper. That's right. not what I mean. They're not going to do it, nor should That's they. Right. right. Um, in Newark, New Jersey, the political wind did change during your tenure as superintendent. I believe that's when uh, then Mayor Cory Booker went to the Senate and the new mayor was elected. How, yeah. how big of an impact did that have on your initiatives? I mean, massive. Just we have very little time. But remembering there was a coalition that involved the faith-based community, the nonprofits, Governor Christie, Mayor Booker, tons of city council members, like a really good coalition that was making it happen. And in the span of like nine weeks, uh, Bridgegate happened. Christie was off the field. Lautenberg passed away, you know, rest his soul. Corey ran for, for Senate off the field. The commissioner, Surf, resigned off the field. The biggest investor, Zuckerberg, you know, sort of peeled back um, his investments off the field. Um, I remember saying to a mentor, so it's like we were going into the second half of the Super Bowl. We were winning. We decided to go even bolder. And then in like the first minute of the second half, the entire offensive line left the field. And I was just standing there with the ball. And he was like, yep, you've read the situation correctly. So, yeah, that wasn't good. <laughs> and it was. No. And none of it was, and it was all circumstantial too. It's like, I'm not, I'm not even, you know, this is not me sort of pointing fingers at any one of those humans. It was, it was a series of just tremendous, it was political Armageddon. And of course it. <laughs> Collateral damage. Unfortunately for the kids um, in, in Newark, New Jersey, I don't think things are much better. In mm -hmm. fact, you know, as we, you know, if we were to fast forward to today without mentioning names, I think the leadership that's in place is probably some of the people you've, uh, let's never mind. We'll, we won't go there, but uh, may have preferred to have kept out of the limelight or out of positions of power. So, you know, it's been extraordinary. This whole experience has been extraordinary. I want to fast forward to, to third way solutions before our final break. And we come back with Professor Guthrie. You, how long have you been leading this company? Um, believe it or not, it's like six years. Okay. Um, I mean, I originally started it because I wanted to, um, take a breather and figure out how to be useful outside of the sort of limelight. Um, although I've had plenty of it, it is not what drives me. Mm -hmm. I, I could go the rest of my life and never see my picture on a magazine. <laughs> Sadly, that doesn't seem to be happening. But um, so I originally just did it to kind of breathe and see how I could be useful and not be a quarterback for a minute. And um, but now I've stayed because it's super fun and we're doing some really cool work. Um, in three kind of areas, which I can quickly rattle off. Um, one, um, we're doing something called uh, the Discipline Revolution Project, which is helping schools and school systems, both charter and traditional, and a couple private shift away from harsh, exclusionary, biased um, discipline practices and towards a much more um, holistic approach to creating communities where kids feel um, seen and heard, and then also responding to incidents and developmentally appropriate ways. So kids are really accountable, but learning. So that's one piece we're working in systems across the country. And um, really partly because I feel like that's one of the root cause. It's like the symptom of the greater illness of, of a, a negative school cultures that are biased. Um, the second piece is we're doing big, bold projects on the 20%, you know, working with systems that want to do things that are different around kids who are court involved, students with disabilities, uh, overaged, undercredited kids, adult learners, the new career and technical ed pieces. So just 
kind of helping systems fashion big solutions to the young people that are often at the back of the line and we think should be at the front. And then finally, um, just a ton of individual uh, coaching and um, uh, uh, C-suite coaching for um, heads of systems and even some corporate entities that are really committed to anti-bias, anti-racist work and, um, and really just helping other leaders win and stay on the field and be healthy and put their goals and their values at the core of their of what they do Monday through Friday, as opposed to trying to shove it around the edges of, of whatever's coming at them. And um, so anyway, those are our three buckets. We keep getting super interesting work. Uh, I, I, I always say life has its seasons. I was a quarterback for, gosh, almost 30 years. This has been my season to be a coach, but still a good quarterback, still can throw some passes. So who knows, but I'm grateful for the work I'm doing now has been really fun. And I've learned a lot. I've learned a ton. Uh, I feel like I take a piece of something away from every leader I have the pleasure of working with. These are more sports metaphors than I'm used to, but I'm trying to figure them out. You, you, you talk to Cammy, you get the sports metaphors. Got sports metaphors. Yeah. So, um, yeah, down here, I have to ask people to tell me what to say. And they'll say, like, just say it's all going to come down to the free throws. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm definitely guilty, but there are teammates of mine who were like, I don't watch sports. Can someone translate? I'm like, sorry, uh, sorry. you know, four sport athlete, title nine, you know, uh, activists, all the things like I, I bring me wherever I go. <laughs> I do. Well, we need more of you. We absolutely need more of you. And I, I miss you. And I think you did what you did in Newark is extraordinary. Same thing in New York and same thing today to this day. You know, you stay, stay true to your, your beliefs. And uh, I, I so admire that. So listen, you've given us a lot to think about. I know that Professor Guthrie, who's waiting patiently, has a lot to say because you're, I know you're hitting all of the buttons that he, uh, he talks about. So when we return from our second break, we're going to be joined by Professor James Guthrie. He knows a thing or two about school leadership himself, having served as a senior fellow at the George W. Bush Institute and as superintendent of public instruction in the state of Nevada, and as an endowed professor of education and as education school dean at the University of California, Berkeley, an endowed professor at Vanderbilt University. He's an extraordinary scholar. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Jim, you can go to his website at jameswguthrie.com, where you might want to buy one of his 20 books that he's published. And if you'd like to learn more about Third Way Solutions, just type in thirdwaysolutions.com and you'll find out more about the work of Cami Anderson, perhaps even how to uh, to reach out and, and uh, work with her. So right now, I invite you to listen and learn about the good work that MECAID is doing in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested, and I hope you are, visit us on the web at meched.org and consider a donation that will go directly to provide supportive services to young people who are facing obstacles that limit their access to opportunity. So MECED is a college and career readiness uh, institution that is very committed to workforce development, has been for quite some time, with a special emphasis on making sure that the kids who face obstacles in our community have a fair shot at a bright future. Right now we're working with young people from uh, Garinger, from Harding, University High, West Charlotte, and Chambers High School. Uh, before the pandemic, they were all on the bottom fifth of the economic ladder. These days, they, it's hard for them to even find that ladder. Then we provide job shadows, uh, paid internships. We'll put, pay for career clothing, transportation, food, certification programs. 
goal to make sure that every every young person in Mecklenburg County has an opportunity to to live a life where they can thrive, both in school and out of school. And we believe that that doesn't happen just by being in school. That school isn't enough. That to be educated requires much more than school. Experiences matter. My experiences with MedEd, uh, they put me in an internship at the hospital for two years. I think I think I do think MedEd is invested in me, um, living my dream. They want the best for each and every one of their students, and it's like they won't go down without a fight. <laughs> so MedEd means opportunity, family, friendship. I am a healthcare tech at Atrium Health University in the Maternity Center. Uh, career Pathways, we work with underserved high school students. We put them in internships at 135 different businesses and industries around Mecklenburg County. It's, it's a powerful economic mobility machine. The experience with Career Pathways, it made me more determined. That's how I got my job at Atrium, because I volunteered for four years at the hospital. So it made me get connections and and they said, I'll, I'll give you a call. With um, the students that we've had, the preparation that they had through Career Pathways was just exceptional. Honestly, I don't know what I would would, would do without Career Pathways. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, it's not, I don't know, having someone to talk to and a shoulder to cry on, you know, different family. MECED's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are going to need to thrive in life. Young people spend only 20% of their time in school. 80% of their life is spent outside of school. And we want to make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places and different ways. With after school, you're, you're hitting on academics, you're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school, with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and Mac Ed, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different. And what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. Welcome back, everyone. We're speaking with Cammie Anderson, and we're now joined by Professor James Guthrie. Jim 
what resonated with you during our conversation with Cammy? Uh, I, I was unprepared for the exciting things that uh, Ms. Anderson had, had to say, uh, almost all of which I, I, I agree with. I wonder if we could think about a few good things, a few happy things for a moment and not dwell on the dismal. Um, there is some progress that's been made. I admit that it, it's, it's very slow, but I, I noted that in this year's uh, Harvard entering freshman class that uh, 18% of freshmen are black at Harvard. The proportion of our overall population spike is 14%. Now, that's just a very small little symbol. I, I don't want to generalize to the world about that. And all the young people that Cammy's concerned with still need the 20% to which she refers. They need our help without question. But some progress is possible. That's just, uh, I don't want us to give up. Uh, second, uh, you know, some of our most uh, effective leaders actually are in rural schools, I I'm finding. In Nevada, where there were 17 county school districts, um, the only problem really was Las Vegas, the great big 450,000 student elephant that we had to deal with. But when I went to these small districts, I was stunned by the quality of, of schooling, the commitment of, of the teachers and the leaders. So it's, it's not, not hopeless. I remember during the pandemic, an Iowa rural superintendent uh, was concerned that not all the students had Wi-Fi in, in their homes where they were trying to instruct them over the internet. So he took the school buses and uh, made them into little broadcast booths and distributed them throughout, throughout the school district. So there's leadership around, but let me uh, convert to so many of the things that, that Cammy said. Um, I keep looking for where do we find the handle that we can turn this system around. And there are more than 4 million teachers in the United States. And as important as an effective teacher is, and Ross, you and I talked about that several weeks ago, um, there are just too many teachers to get your arms around them. You, you just don't know what to do. And the teacher training institutions, we've got 2,000 of them training teachers maybe at maximally 50 of them doing a good job. So that's too big. So I thought, where can you get leverage? And with uh, President George W. Bush, we, we came down around principles. There are 100,000 principles in the United States. And Cammy's already made reference to how significant they are in, in making an individual school effective. Um, I think we could get our arms around 100,000 principles, and, and they turn over. It's about 15,000 new ones or additional ones every year. When you break it down, I think uh, Cammy's third way, I am now asking her, you know, if you concentrated on principles and we found some coalition to support you, do you think that's an interesting or at least a possibly effective way to get a handle on changing this system? Uh, absolutely. So I think um, focusing on school leaders and principals and kind of the folks that they how they build a cabinet is how we thought about it is 100 percent a lever. Um, places like new leaders where I served as chief program officer um, for five years, did some really um, great work and is continuing to do some good work, but it's still 
it's not enough. Um, I, I think we learned a lot at New Leaders, and I learned a lot at my in my two different superintendencies about what turns out to matter in a game-changing principle. What can you teach versus what do you have to come to the party with? <laughs> and um, and then also what are the essential characteristics and know-how um, that, that you need to have in order to see um, just breakthrough results, right? And so I think I certainly have learned a lot about, it. I know places like New Leaders and elsewhere, and then we know everything flows from there because um, great principals know what to do with curricula, great principals <laughs> retain and coach teachers, uh, and they also, you know, create ladders so leaders stay, right? And I just am working with one client, a rural client, to your point, um, I've been doing a lot of work in rural um, communities, and we asked teachers, you know, what are, what are the top three reasons you stay? And, you know, um, number two and three was quality of feedback they get and the quality of the person next door. So, like, awesome school leaders are, I think, a critical lever for change. Uh, I think we need to shine a bigger spotlight re- and resource that better and, and think and think in bigger, bolder ways about how we tackle it, especially now with, with all of the incoming that we've been talking about. Cami, uh, among your endearing qualities is are these beautiful analogies you, you make in the way you, you uh, characterize and describe things. Uh, I'm t- vastly taken by it. I wish I could emulate you sufficiently. But you know, let's talk about state certification of these principles. Mm-hmm. Now, my, my experience is that certification means almost nothing. Exactly. <laughs> and, and we've got literally hundreds of thousands of people locked into this um, self-serving system of getting college units and getting a, 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 certif- a state certification and the ed school gets tuition and the person gets a higher salary rating and they've actually learned nothing and they're not e- so many of them don't even want to be a principal anyway they're just just taking these uh, empty courses uh, you think if we could get hold of this certification system? I know it's 50 states and five trust, terri- trust territories, quite common. But if we could get certification that mattered somehow. Right. Uh, yep. Well, necessity is the mother of invention. And um, right now, we have so much attrition happening at all levels, mm-hmm. superintendent, principal, assistant principal, teacher, Um one would hope that states in particular <laughs> are thinking out of the box about how to meet the moment. And I, and you're seeing pockets of it, mm-hmm. um, you know, where people are either waiving requirements or creating alternative pathways or doing something even more bold, uh, but not enough. And that's where I think we could, you know, I believe that advocacy, federal government, philanthropy, all the, th- you know, all of us, should be sort of um, imploring uh, public policy officials and others to um, meet the moment. Like this, this if there were ever a time mm-hmm. to uh, break the monopoly as you are describing it, uh, it, it would be now. And so uh, I think we need to make that case and, and find leaders, particularly at the state level, because they have so much autonomy to um, think out of the box about um, how we, do things differently when it comes to how you get certified and how you become a school leader and remain a school leader. 
As you spoke earlier in this program, I thought of the one union leader for whom I had great admiration as long as he was alive. That was Al Shanker. Uh, you could actually sit across the bargaining table from Al Shanker and you could have created, one could have created a, a great school system. But there doesn't appear to be anybody of that uh, presence or ilk around today. And um, the Council of Chief State School Officers, the American Association of uh, secondary school principals, et cetera. These national organizations really at the moment are not stepping up with the challenges to which you referred. The, uh, and the unions themselves, I don't get it. They're so politicized and they almost always line up with the Democratic Party. And when I encounter their leaders, I say, have you noticed that ever since World War II, the White House has been controlled almost 60% of the time by Republicans and Congress more than that. So just maybe if you're going to play politics, you might think it bit through a little better about what, how you want to align yourself. But uh, I would be, uh, I wish though uh, you had been on my team or I could have been on your team. I, I sort of uh, salivated at what we could have, could have done together. Great admiration and I think if we can make, give you, find some way to give you a national voice, a national mega, an additional megaphone, um, I think our public education system would be the better for it. Well, thank you. And uh, awesome to share the space with you. And, and Ross, of course, uh, you. Um, so I'm re ready, ready, willing, and able for whatever revolution that comes from this, uh, this convening. So thanks, thanks for the time. Just making a list of uh, the organizations and people we might have to apologize to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> teacher education institutions, union leaders, let's see. Uh, actually, one of my favorite quotes comes from Al Shanker, who said, you know, you can't change a little without changing a lot. Yeah. Amen. Right. Amen. And a great, a great leader. And there are great leaders in all of the institutions that we've talked yes. about. Um, we, need to, we need to call ourselves to our highest purpose, no matter what organization we represent. So, so you think of uh, these rural districts now, I'm intrigued, uh, rural communities, is it because they're smaller, you can wrap your arms around them? These big city districts are too big, un too unwieldy? I think that's a large part of it. Um, Cammie is frequently in, in her remarks and this program has spoken about the, the necessity of a principal having autonomy and to some degree within boundaries, teachers, the same thing. But uh, in, in rural districts with which I had uh, familiarity, um, they were so far apart that the superintendent couldn't really script the principal. Hmm. You had to trust them. You didn't have a choice. You couldn't get to them. You know, Esmeralda County in Nevada has 68 students over five schools, hmm. and about 20% of those students don't live in Nevada. They live in California. Uh, there's the, the, to drive to all five schools would take you three days. Right. Uh, so there was, you had to trust the principal. This is Ross Dennis representing MECED, Mecklenburg County, North Carolina's premier college and career readiness initiative. And you've been listening to Let's Reinvent School on Voice America's Variety Channel. Onward. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Let's Reinvent School. Tune in next week as we give you some more great insight into the state of the public education system. Until next week, class dismissed.